everyone, and welcome back to the Tree Actions Podcast. Uh, we have a couple changes today. We have a special guest host, uh, Mr. DJ Newstater. Um, Dwayne himself was unable to make it. He seems to be stuck in a government office trying to redo a passport. Mm, the strange things that happen to you in life. But anyway, uh, and we also have a really good friend of mine and excited to have her on the podcast here, Amanda Carpenter, who has a long experience in tree care industry, among many other things, and a lot of great insight. So, like I said, we always tell people, we were talking about this earlier off air, we always tell people that we don't have a script, and then we ask the same question to begin with every time. Uh, so maybe we do have a script and we're just misleading people. We call this the Human Forestry Podcast uh, which was an idea that, well, Dwayne named it, but I think we came up with it um, concurrently. And that what it re- what we came to realize is that in our own lives as arborists, um, there were very many similarities between trees, forests. And we started to understand that our communities, our groups looked a lot like forests. And the, the um, I guess the analogies and stuff that could go on from there were very prevalent. So what we always start to ask people about is when it comes to human forestry, how did you get involved in, uh, how did you get involved in tree care? What's your background story? And uh, we'll go from there. Sound good, Amanda? Sounds great. Thanks for the intro, Tony. Appreciate no it. No problem. No problem. People get to know you yeah, as Dwayne, you go on. Dwayne, Dwayne has a tendency to get stuck in lineups. Well, there's a whole nother story there we'll get to <laughs> later. Hmm. Interesting. I always, this question has come up before and I always think like, hmm, which answer do I give? So there's the answer of, I was kind of born into it. Uh, my father was actually a logger uh, in the Adirondack Mountains back in the 80s. And so I grew up with a chainsaw running in the backyard all the time and visiting the header. And it's like a different type of logging than we what we think of for tree care today, now that there's so much equipment. So um, I learned to nap very well with a chainsaw running in the background, as long as it was humming along nicely. If it stopped abruptly, <laughs> there, was always, there was always a bit of fear there because there were several accidents um, and I would say that tree care came back around, it was around 2005, 2006. Uh, at that point in time, I was a physical therapist and would have conversations with my brother about the physical body and climbing and trees. And so it was back in, I, we think it was 2006. It was whatever year TCIA was in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, Ed and I presented together on ergonomics and um, the body climbing. It was very well received. And that was kind of the turning point of me getting involved in the industry and um, meeting many of you back in 2006, 2007, back then. So yeah, it's been an awesome journey. Cool. Wow. And and so, and your father was a logger. So yeah, you definitely kind of grew up uh, around trees and with trees in the family. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. The yeah. smell of like, I remember he'd come home at night and the bathroom would smell of like pine chips, like we're in the Adirondacks. So the Northern white pine, like I smell the smell of the wood chips, like is a memory that brings back so much about childhood. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that can relate to that. I, uh, I myself remember, uh, I actually, I, I must've been 10 or 11 years old, I tried making my own cologne out of some sawdust. I found, and I basically just mixed it in a little water spray can. And, and then I went around like uh, spraying it on myself and, and I was like, yeah, I smell like wood chips now, just like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think a lot of people can relate to the, the smell of someone who's, who works with trees. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, and so, did you live out? Where did where did you grow up? Like, were like, did you were you out like with him in the woods when he would cut trees ever, or, um, you know, were you did you grow up in town? Like, what what was that like? Well, our our town is a very small town in the southern Adirondacks. It's called Warrensburg, is where I grew up. But most people would know Lake George. So we're just four miles north of Lake George, um, which is in the very southern Adirondack Mountains. And so I, we grew up in, we lived in town, but very, very small, um, you know, 3,000 people in our hometown. And so the logging company, Carpenter Brothers Logging, was owned by my uncle. And they had, okay. an old, they had an old school bus that was parked at the header and they would drag it around from header to header. And it had a wood stove in it that they would feed and it would heat it. So we would occasionally go see my dad to have like lunch on the header. And well, I'm every- sorry, for those of us that aren't a header, what is what is a header? Um, well, a header is where they bring the logs, they skid the logs out um, and cut them to size. There's probably much more fancy terms for it, but cut them to size to get loaded up to be taken off to sawmill or wherever they're going to go. Log landing is what we oh, call it down you. here. A log landing. Yeah. Cool, cool. Right on. And and you'd ride in a school bus that had a wood stove built inside of it. Well, we didn't ride. So the school bus was parked kind of like a you know travel travel trailer. Yeah. And they would drag the school bus from header to header, you know, because they would they'd be set up. Winter was a prime logging time. Right. So the header might be the same header for all winter long. Wow. Interesting. And and yeah, interesting. So and and did you what did you think about all the trees getting cut down and processed and like what was your first impressions of that as a kid when you saw, you know, lumber being produced and dad going to work and and uh, yeah, what what was some of your first impressions on that? Well, it was a it was a very large industry back then. We're talking like very early eighties. We're talking like eighty eighty one. And so it was like the norm in the Southern Adirondacks. There were several companies that did that and small, like, you know, small operations. Um, So it was like a way of life. It was a part of life. It was a way to make money. It was a way to, you know, you would, you would see, you would actually, based on where the uh, log trucks were headed, you knew which sawmill they were going to, you know what they were going to produce. And so it was kind of just a normal way of life. I do recall though, the front of the log trucks, like Western Star and what are they, like Freightliner. And like, I remember this is the time of Transformers. And I yeah. remember really afraid of the front of the log trucks. Like they were big, mean. Like, so I remember like the logs were no big deal, but the trucks were like scary monsters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could, I could definitely see that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and so you kind of grew up around trees getting cut down, and and then um, and then you ended up giving a talk way later as you grew up, and give it giving a talk on ergonomics in Connecticut around uh, ergonomics using chainsaws, or what what was that talk around in two thousand five? That was really is it was around climbing using chainsaws, using hand tools. It was just like the positioning of the body and and beginning to think about the body and how the body gets abused by industrial athletes. 
So that was a time where it was like, oh, you know, this industry is a rough industry and the logging industry, the arboriculture industry, kind of they're, they're similar industries, but I wouldn't call them all the exact same industry. Um, but it was like, you beat the hell out of your body. And then you have a very you know, limited career by your mid forties, it's over. And so starting to look at how we take care of the body, how we move the body is originally what we were talking about. But over time, as I evolved as a physical therapist in the way that I looked at the body, how we actually take care of the body has evolved tremendously since that original talk. So that original talk was about on how the body moves. And now really, if, well, I'm headed out to Pacific Northwest next week to talk about what's your body trying to tell you. Right, right, right. It's now very different. Did you ever, did you ever notice anything like that? Like with, with your, with your father, for example, cause he was, he was logger, right? Working in the woods. Did you ever notice stuff like that as a, as a kid? Well, he was actually, so he was like this amazing, never went to the gym, but had like a crazy, amazing physique. And so I realized like he's exercising every day in the work mm. that he's doing, you know? And so I realized that he was an athlete and he actually took relatively good care of his body, eating whole foods, didn't eat a lot of processed foods. Uh, he did smoke for several years, but aside from that, took pretty good care of his body. And so he had, he had a decent career. However, when I was six years old, so we're talking 80, it would have been 84, um, he had a pretty serious life-threatening accident. Mm. And um, actually, Tony would be able to explain exactly what happened better than I would in tree care terms. But basically, he got hit by a widowmaker and mm. um, crushed his skull. He had a brain injury, but I didn't realize he had a brain injury until years later. Um, knocked his teeth out. So he was pretty, he had to have all sorts of reconstructive surgery and it was in the hospital. And so I never realized how that impacted me until years later because mm. he recovered from that. Like it was such a serious life threatening. I never realized how close to death he came like at the time. Right. Afterwards, once I was more evolved as a physical therapist and really understood the body, I'm like, oh my goodness, like that was really serious. And that was a brain injury. I didn't mm. realize like nobody gets hit in the head without having a brain injury. Even a concussion is a brain injury. We change. We're different after that. So I have two sisters. We have, there's four children in our family and two sisters that are older than I am. And then there's myself and my brother. My two sisters were raised essentially by a different dad than my brother and I were raised. And it, I only discovered that about 10 years ago. Interesting. So until I got into tree care, I didn't really understand the impact that that accident had. I would say if you ask my brother the same question, he started to think about it much sooner than I did. So, yeah, it's and 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 at what point did you kind of realize that you know these the physical side, like you as a physiotherapist, uh, was going to connect back to the tree industry or trees in a way? When did when did you realize that that was a connection that you knew you wanted to pursue um, instead of just you know, continuing on with physiotherapy or, or, uh, you know, specifically you focus a lot on the nature of arboriculture and forestry related workers, the industrial athlete, as you mentioned, when, when did you kind of realize you wanted to make that shift? Well, really, as I got to meet more and more people in the industry, the industry is easy to fall in love with the industry based on the people. 
Right? Like you meet somebody the first time it's a handshake, the next time it's a hug and you see them once a year, maybe once every couple of years. So the industry is such a warm, welcoming, connected industry in a general sense. I'm sure there's some out there that aren't, but in a general sense. And so um, I really just meeting actually many of, of you guys um, made me more and more interested and also recognize that, you know what, there's so many aspects to arbor culture and being an industrial athlete that actually sets you up for better health right. rather than the opposite. So I'm like, I want to change that narrative. So it was somewhere after, you know, 2008 is when ergo, the ergovation, the saddle, um, the climbing saddle by Buckingham came out. And that's a design that my brother and I worked on. And um, so it was still about the physical body and how the body moved even in 2008. So somewhere along 2010, 2012, somewhere in there, I started to recognize how we take care of the body and all the benefits of working as an arborist. You're working outside under natural light, which is a key to mitochondrial activation. You're engaging in nature. So you're touching the tree that actually roots down into the ground. You're getting negative ions. It's actually balancing your own inner battery and energetic field, increasing your biofields to improve heart rate variability. Um, So I started to recognize, you know, as long as you put good food in, you know, and don't put a lot of toxins in, it's actually a profession of longevity versus the opposite. And I want to change the narrative. So that was somewhere in 2012. Right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Often a question that uh, gets asked to on this podcast is how the trees have affected you both. Well, in one domain kind of personally, uh, but also how they've affected you in your professional life. And, and I think it's, 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 it's so awesome how you've taken that I, physiotherapy, the human body, and connected that back with trees and in, in the profession, and and they are hi- harmonious for sure. I I totally agree with that. I've experienced that as well. Definitely, uh, definitely go hand in hand. Um, yeah, trees and and staying healthy and work and getting to work out there too in in nature with with it all. Yeah, you know, man, it's something I've realized too in looking at. You know, as you get older, you have to take better care of yourself and all the different things. And I looked at what I did as a living as a climber. And and I would even say, um, you know, I've never been one to engage actively or regularly in meditation or meditation. It just doesn't typically work for me. But I did notice when I stopped climbing on a regular basis, I found myself wanting to meditate more. And I was thinking about why. And I'm like, well, you know, working in the tree was kind of a meditation. You brought up a great point. It's, you know, in so many aspects, everything we do as an arborist is good for you. But then it begs the question, and I know we've talked about this a lot, but I'd like to hear your viewpoints on it. Why then is it such a da- or such a hazardous industry? Why do so many people get hurt doing it? Yeah, great point. So um, that transition and that shift happened somewhere in 2015, 16. Like, why do accidents happen? Was a question that I asked. And accidents happen because of mechanical failure sometimes, and that can even relate back to a human failure that was an inspection error, or even a human failure in the factory. But it can result back to the human failure. And why the human failure? Is it because they weren't trained? Or was it because they couldn't access the training? And as we look deeper and deeper, and we look back at the history, there the training has gotten more and more robust, but it hasn't gotten safer. So I asked myself the question, like, okay, why can't they access that training? 
And the answer is in order to access everything that's stored in our frontal lobe, all of our memories, we have to be in what's called a coherent state. And a coherent state is a grounded state, a non-triggered state of the nervous system. So if we get triggered, essentially what happens is our heart rate and our heart rhythm kind of take off. They elevate. And in they then send information up to the brain that puts us in our reactionary brain rather than in the frontal lobe where all of the training is stored. So, you know, there's an accident investigation, the person made a fatal mistake and they're dead and a bunch of people looking at it. What the hell were they thinking? Well, the issue was they weren't thinking. So this is where Tony and I together kind of started to look at, well, why weren't they thinking? What was causing them to become incoherent and things like they were, you know, a new parent and have a baby at home and they didn't sleep well. They just got some terrible news in their family. Their blood sugar was off. But so often it related back to they had a boss who triggered them. And so many people in the industry are promoted based on being a good worker, not based on being a good leader. Right. And so we started to look at like what makes somebody a good leader. And particularly in this industry, a lot of people who are right now currently in leadership positions or owner operators were raised by the generation that was, you know, pull up your bootstraps, just get shit done, you know, go out there, non-emotional, you know, and, and in an, in a very triggering way. And then the newer, younger generations tend to be a little bit more aware of the fears, want to understand why. And so depending on who that leader, how triggered that leader is in the moment, are they, is their battery depleted? Are they well hydrated? Did they sleep well? Will determine who they show up as. Do they show up as that positive, empowering younger generation leader? Or do they show up as the leader that is stuck in them generational, you know, yelling and using fear, command and control to get things done? And so really, that's when Tony and I teamed up with the leadership program that we have, like, let's impact because people don't want to be bad leaders. No, no. And and it's, 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 this is an interesting, interesting point, too. It's something that I've experienced in the industry. You know, there's always the the good, bad, and the ugly, so to say. Um, and there's lots of good and there's lots of good. It, it's something that I've, I wonder sometimes, um, you know, maybe somebody who's experienced some of those negative interactions, you know, when they go back out into the woods or into the forest in a non-industrial setting, you know, do you, are, how, how do they feel? Do they think about work when they see a tree or do they think about something else? And I mean, when you see a tree, Amanda, what, what's like, you, you see a beautiful, well, I shouldn't put any kind of context around it. Like when you run into a tree, you know, what does it make you think of when you see a tree? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, it depends on, so I'm actually thinking about like this past weekend, we did some hiking in our, like we actually live in a forest based community and there's pines everywhere. And actually it needs, there's, we were in a section that needs to be lumbered. And I'm like, this area needs a little TLC. Like there's, the trees are crowding each other out. They need to, some of them need to be moved out of here. So I was actually thinking of how the forest could actually be enhanced by doing some very selective cutting in that area. Like there was too much happening. There was too, uh, it was overpopulated. 
<laughs> interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So you're thinking, you're thinking very, I like, yeah, yeah. In that setting, a, a bigger picture perspective, like how, how can we actually make this better to provide more services, ecosystem services and social services for individuals? And yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, I'm curious with you, like when, what, what, like, does it depend on the, like for me, I, I'd say it definitely depends on the tree sometimes too, like what tree it is that I see. Like if it's a dead ash or elm, I, I, I might go towards more the industrial side and just think about a time when I uh, was up in a dead tree and feeling a little scared or worried or whatever. But if it's a beautiful Salix babliotica on the edge of a pond somewhere, you know, I start thinking of Lord of the Rings, you know, or something like that. It's it's interesting, the, the different settings and what they trigger in us as, as memories. Yeah, what I think of when I see a tree is a complex question, right? Um, it, I know if you'd asked me that, Five years ago, you'd have gotten probably a very technical um, definition or, or explanation, because mm. I tended to see trees as as jobs, as a as something to be completed, as something that needed fixed or helped or whatever removed. Um, I think as I've gotten older and moved forward, and maybe it just comes from climbing them less as well. I don't have to climb trees every day. Right. I tend to see them more as um. Well, there's certain trees that that elicit memories because I've I've worked in them for for years, you know, again and again. So I go through the old stomping grounds and I've, I've climbed that tree. Oh, I've pruned that tree. Oh, you know, and and I can, and that triggers a memory on that time and space. I mean, all of like, you know, when my, my nieces and nephews were born and my brothers would call me and, and make the announcement, I was usually at work. I remember those trees, you know, so Mm -hmm. I have trees that are connected to, you know, family events, which is weird, but true. Um, you know, because mm-hmm. I can remember where I was at that moment. But I think now if you look at it the whole, um, I try and think of, I, trees have taught me acceptance. I, I would used to look, 10 years ago, I'd look at a tree and think how I could fix it. Now mm. I look at a tree and think what it's trying to tell me. Um, Interesting. And understanding wow. that, you know, a lot of a lot of my work, while not bad, was not necessarily for the tree. It was for the society, culture, environment, human environment it had to live in, not the tree was fine. Like the, the dead wood I removed out of the oak tree, the oak tree didn't care. Um, not saying that removing the dead wood was useless, but you know, it just it, it didn't affect the oak tree, and it was fine one way or the other. Um, mm. So t- I tend to see them more now. You know, for instance, I see a dead tree laying on the ground, and you know, when you think about it, pound for pound, it has more life in it than when that tree was alive and growing, because then it was just one thing, but now it's a, a host for so many other things. So. Trees are, uh, that's a complex question for me when I think, when I see mm-hmm. a tree, you know, um, but that's fine. I don't, I don't mind it so much. You know, it's, um, yeah, I've learned like complex I've, questions. I know that yeah. <laughs> I've learned, <laughs> I've learned a lot from trees, you know, um, a lot of things in, in acceptance, um, in understanding in work in work ethic trees have taught me a great, a great deal about work ethic mm. and stuff, but then they've always been a bit of a medium. So I don't have a good answer. I'm going to sit firmly on the fence well, on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Firmly. Yeah. yeah. Or just don't hit the fence. Right. Yeah, that's the, that's that's right the, key, the fence, key portion right of that. Yeah. Amanda, I'm curious too, with uh, going back, back to trees and, and we're talking here a little bit about people's experiences and, uh, negative interactions maybe in the industrial setting on the job site with a bad boss or something like that. But do you ever, you know, trees have been scientifically proven and nature is scientifically proven to have health, ben- major health benefits, right? And there's <laughs> there's people out there writing articles and studying how putting the science behind some of the 
energy, so to say, or the energy fields behind nature and specifically trees, though, and, and how they create chemical changes in our brains. Um, what's your experience with that? And when was the first time that you really noticed that you had had that experience with a tree? Where it was more than just the knowledge side, like you felt some sort of like, uh, or have you ever felt some sort of energetic connection or uh, it, it changed your mindset a little bit when you were when you were around that tree or in that environment? Yeah, well, I would say trees in general, because of growing up in the Southern Adirondacks, there's trees everywhere. Um, lots of pine trees and pine trees are intimidating to me because they are so dangerous and they're so big and they fall a lot and they do a lot of damage around here. But the smell, um, I actually, it's usually on my desk and I, I took it to the retreat that I hosted last weekend. Um, it's actually a little essential oil of the Adirondack park, like the trees in the Adirondacks, so like you can smell it and it's like you're hiking mm. in the forest. I have one of Acadia National Park too. So like you can smell and just like, oh, everything that does. Um, but the trees, so smell is actually a direct way to our brain, our memory of our, our feeling brain, but particularly the fighting sides that come off of trees that actually are like natural endorphins. Right. So as I said, there's so many benefits of being out around trees and being in nature. Fighting sides are one. Um, fighting sides are what are released. And everybody talks about forest bathing, like, you know, going in the forest and, um, essentially we would call it hiking, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> aren't around trees a lot, or they call it forest bathing, going into the forest and walking. Um, when we're looking at that greenery, when we're looking at trees, we actually burn more calories with the exercise and the physical activity we're doing. There's so many benefits. Um, they say, as long as we're safe in nature, in the forest, we can't be angry. And I would say that mm. that is true as long as we're safe, right? Like anger, rage and anger. If we had to defend ourselves against a grizzly or something in the woods, of course, we'd be angry. But um, so, yeah, there's so many physical benefits. And I used to say, you know, years ago when somebody would get promoted from like a climbing position to a sales position, say, and like, oh, now they're in the car all the time and they're driving around or they're in the office all the time. And people would say, oh, you know, their whole, their health is falling apart. And it's the physicality. They need the physicality back. And I like called bullshit on that years ago because I'm like, it's not the physicality. Like they are not engaging in their meditative practice, you know, mm. smelling the trees, touching the trees, the biofield. Actually, our heart rate variability is enhanced by being around trees. And heart rate variability is really our overall health. It's associated with all cause mortality. And it's a better measure of health than cholesterol and other blood work goes. So when we are around trees, the biofield to improve our heart rate variability is improved, right? Right, right. And if we also think about, you know, somebody is a uh, hundred feet up in a tree doing a removal, you have to be incredibly present. Like it's putting us or putting you guys in the flow state, like an athlete. Mm. You know, if we think of a, a really aggressive ski racer who is going down, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree. You're not thinking of what not to do. You're just in that flow state, right? So that's the same state that I would argue that a climber gets in when they're in a risky position. It's that flow state, that presence. You have to kind of, you know, wall out what else might be happening. And then when you're safe again, boom, reality hits. And when we do accident investigation, it's actually when people let their guard down from a safety standpoint that more accidents and injuries happen. Mm. So, and I wonder with, um, with the, is it Cena? The, yeah, yeah, the communication headsets. 
Yeah, yeah, I wonder those years, if we look at when Xena came out and then the years in the future, I wonder if that's going to, going to interrupt that presence and that meditative and that flow state time with the trees. Because if somebody's listening to a podcast, even they might not be talking to somebody, but they're listening to a podcast, they're not as present. So I wonder what we're going to see happen. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm curious, Amanda, your perspective too on flow state and... I'm just thinking off the top of my 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 brain here, but uh, when it comes to safety in the industry, you know, some sometimes we see evidence of potentially overreactions or overregulation at times, and how that could affect a a worker in a tree in their flow state, so to say. Um, mm-hmm. what what what's some of your thoughts on that? Like, do you think do you think there can be a boss that's too bossy or is is it good to let climbers to some degree enter that flow state in a way that they know how energetically mm-hmm. yeah that's a great question well yeah so micromanaging totally can take somebody out of their flow state right it's like that mm. coach. so if you think of an athlete and a coach coaching them if the coach is yelling at them and in the moment when they're performing, you know, when they're actually engaging, um, like yelling at them at that time wouldn't be helpful. You stupid asshole, don't do this differently, do that differently. It wouldn't be helpful. They're cheering, they're encouraging, right? Like if you think of right. a, a fans even, um, we want to be encouraging when somebody has to be in a high performance. So we have to look at that same state. I mean, if we were to look at Olympic level ski racing, like one wrong move, you could die, right? Same mm-hmm. thing with climbing. Mm-hmm. One wrong move, you could die. The state that the person is in and what is happening to them while they're in the state to not get distracted out of that state. Because essentially in a flow state, an athlete doesn't hear the fans doesn't hear the coach. They doesn't hear anything. They're present with themselves. We need to be aware that that's the same state that climbers need to get in when they're in very risky situations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's almost, there's information and there's true science to this on the quantum level. There's information in the field through our heart rate variability that's communicated before it can actually like process through our brain. And so when it comes to reacting to a potential accident, if, if the initial, if you're not taking in those senses. Yeah. If you're not, if you're exactly. not taking in everything, you're not going to be able to react in a, in a suitable manner. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I find that, I find that topic fascinating. Um, and, uh, and I've definitely experienced that myself, the, the getting into a flow state, but also having that flow state interrupted by certain things. And, and, uh, I find it's always good to take a break when that happens, you know, um, if, if your flow state, you're noticing it getting interrupted, that it's good to just come down, take a break and, uh, regather your, your senses before you get back into it. Cause, cause yeah, definitely bad things start to happen when you, when you ignore that, that energy field or that, that, uh, that spidey sense feeling, that tingly feeling. Is there anything we could do as climbers or any type, I guess, to, to enhance or get into the flow state to move into it. Cause for me, it's always been kind of a fleeting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's certain activities that were more likely to put me in a flow state than others. Um, treat work was one of them for a long time. Ironically, the reason I've really stopped climbing production work 
on a daily basis was my inability to get into a flow state. In fact, I had the exact opposite. I was like anti-flow. It was Monday morning, but I was Friday afternoon. Um, that, that was not a good way to go about doing tree work. But is there anything we could do to enhance that, Amanda, to, to help to, or to develop that capacity to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And then we'll want to circle back on like when that flow state, like that's when a climber knows that truly their career is done. When that flow state, like that's the body saying, all right, check out, because if you can't get in that, then an accident is going to happen, you know? So, and that's, we'll talk about that actually at PNWISA mm-hmm. next week about what's your body trying to tell you. So there's a lot of things that we can do to enhance that. Um, first and foremost, super important, proper hydration is absolute key. Um, and then in the moment, how we breathe. So there's a technique called a coherent breathing technique. So there's lots of breathing techniques out there. Some breathing techniques are to actually like clear energy. Like if I've got too much anger in my system and I need to bring myself down, I can do an aggressive breathing technique that clears that energy. There's relaxation breathing techniques that relax us. There's not a single industrial athlete who should ever be relaxed on the job though. Flow state is coherence where everything is working together cohesively. Relaxation is like that belongs at home. We can't even drive a car when we're in relaxation. So coherent breathing technique is right through the center of the chest. We just imagine our breath is flowing in and out of the center of our chest, breathing a little slower and a little deeper than usual. And Mm. that can actually changes the pressure on the heart to shift the rhythm and to put us in that coherent state. So there's a lot of different techniques out there. HeartMath Institute is something that um, we brought to the world of arboriculture back in 2017, 18, somewhere along in there. Um, And so we would call that technique, it's called heart-focused breathing or in the moment, tactical breathing. So what it does is it helps to get you in that flow state. We teach law enforcement um, and military, like when they've got gun drawn, focus your attention in the area of your heart and breathe to put you in the flow state. So it actually increases situational awareness rather than causing the tunnel vision that can happen. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And it just makes me think, do you think, do you think we do the same thing when we're relaxing too? Like we're talking about it in the sense of, you know, we're working and we need to get into a flow state to produce and, um, you know, production wise work on a tree. However, on the flip side, when you're just, you know, on that hike or you're enjoying nature, do you think we do similar breathing techniques or is it, is it something kind of different? Great question. I mean, in theory, we want to be in a coherent breathing technique all the time because what coherent breathing technique does is it is a rhythm of sympathetic to parasympathetic. So our Mm. sympathetic, our autonomic nervous system has two sides of it. And everybody talks about, oh, the fight or flight response, it's terrible, we never should be there. Well, that's a triggered state. The sympathetic nervous system is just the gas pedal of our nervous system. And we need it. We need it to think, we need it to act, we need it to react, we need it to drive a car, we need it to run a chainsaw. So the sympathetic nervous system is the gas. But if if we run the gas too often, we run out of gas. So we need to actually be taking little breaks to recharge the system. So gas break, gas break. The rhythm of that gas break, gas break comes from our breathing. And actually that's what we call coherence. So Mm. when the in breath, we're in a state of sympathetic, which is the gas pedal, energetic, I can be present. On the out breath, it's a state of relaxation. So um, yes, when we're hiking, we can get into that same state. It might just not be as focused, the degree of focus and the degree of flow is a little bit different depending on where we're at. Can we let our guard down? 
So the whole idea of coherence is it increases situational awareness, right? And that's a big thing in safety. We want increased situational awareness in in the safety world because we're going to pick up on something. We can be that present when we're hiking to be aware of like, is there a danger of an animal up ahead? It's interesting. I'm I'm thinking back now to earlier in the talk, and you you described a a widowmaker that that hit your your dad. And why do you think why do you think that happened? Mm, do you know the story? Because that's an interesting question. Um, no, and I don't even know the way I tell the story is a little bit different than the way that my dad tells the story, um, which Tony now has. But the way I remember the story being told is my dad sensed that something was off that day. Like he sensed something Mm. just wasn't right. He felt it. Mm. And, but back then in the eighties, you didn't speak up. You didn't stop work. You didn't just say something doesn't feel right. You know, even nowadays, there are some teams that'll be like, no, we're calling it. Something just doesn't feel right. But then there's other ones that, what are you talking about? We don't know what it is. We're just going to keep going. So, so he, so he did, he did, there was a, in the story, it, he, re, he had some sort of feeling that something was off. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, and there is, there's information on the quantum level, there's information and the trees. So the HeartMath Institute is actually measuring, they have monitors on trees and the information trees put out, like the trees can actually give us an indication of whether or not an earthquake is going to happen. Right. Right. So there's information in the field that we have access to, but we have to be present and coherent enough to recognize it, number one. But then we have to be brave enough to act on it, number two. Yeah, it makes me think about a lot of stuff. It's interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> oh, I mean, you talked about you know the role of leadership and, and bad leaders, and we imprint on that too. I think what a lot of people miss, and this is a conversation we've had many times, Amanda, is that when you, when you say leadership and leadership development, a lot of people think of the classic leader, right? You know, the person that stands in front of people and, and all that, the crew leader, the company owner and those things. I think that what most people miss is that the leadership really, it has to start at an individual level, right? And what I've found that is when you're in that flow state or you're coherent, however you want to describe it, you're more likely to be a better self-leader. So you're more likely to say, this isn't right. We need to stop. We need to reassess your, then to just go straight on in and just, you know, and bullhead in it. And I remember talking with your dad about the story and the way he, it, you know, what he impressed upon me was for him, it almost seemed superstitious. His concerns were almost like a superstition. Like mm. he knew something was off, but it was like, he thought he could maybe combat it through superstition. Well, I just won't, well, I've done this. I'm wearing these boots or these, these aren't his examples. These are just off the top of my head, but there was some clothing involved in there. I haven't listened to the recording in a bit, but There's I red, it was red fruit of the loom underwear. All right. So, mm. and, and it, <laughs> yeah, well, I and can I think, relate to that. We all got our special socks <laughs> and underwear. <You're> right. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that he had seen that or felt that, that, you know, for lack of better term, spidey sense, but then was relying a, maybe perhaps on, some superstition or tradition or whatever you want to call it to, to help combat that, which we all do. Um, you know, it happens. I know as a climber, you know, my gear had to be just right in the right way. Um, you know, and it didn't make any, but any sense to anybody, but me, but it was just the way I wanted it to be. And some of that was, was straight up superstition. Um, some of it was getting to the point of, I think the saving grace for me. And when I realized that I wasn't able to really get into that flow state when I was doing tree work, the saving grace for me was 
how do you put it? I think that I had practiced working at a high level for so long. And then I trained other people to try and get to that high level that I recognized the deficiencies in myself very early. Mm. Um, and could, you know, and could literally having the experiences that I've had, had seen so many people, you know, doing the right thing, but still failing, still having incidents, still, you know, getting killed, still getting hurt that I could see the writing on the wall in my own, my own work. And that was a gift that I gave myself. Um, and I think that, I think your father to an extent in his story did too. He just was never in a position to step back. There was something holding him back, whether it be, you know, just financial pressure, work ethic, whatever it be. There was that one thing that, that just didn't hold back. You know what I mean? Just didn't, mm -hmm. didn't allow him to step up and say, nah, not today or to look up. Cause you know, he does, I don't think he remembers if he, well, if he would have done a better hazard inspection, I don't think I don't know if he'd have seen that hazard. He doesn't yeah. have that that level of recollection, but it's possible. You know, it's possible that he would have looked up and been like, "Whoa, look at that!" Right? And uh, but I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, often with with accidents, we and and stories around accidents. Sometimes there is this recurring theme that comes up, which is something was just off that day. You know, it always starts off with that. And uh, for whatever reason, hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, you can look back on something and say, yeah, th that makes sense why I was feeling the way that I was that morning now that the whole day has progressed the way that it has. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, Amanda, have you do, you, do you have any kind of uh, experience around that relating to trees, like where you've sensed something was off? I know you, you like, have you? I'm actually not sure. Like, have you ever, have you worked much in the industry? Like, um, on the job site, cutting trees and running chainsaws? No. So everybody in my family was allowed to run a chainsaw except for Amanda. So, um, I don't, <laughs> right. know, I don't know what I did. Like we actually, our primary source of heat was wood. And so I don't know what I did, but I was kind of also known, known as the spaz and the freak of the family. Right. But I was like, you don't touch it. So I did touch it at one point in time. I don't like my dad tried to teach me. I don't know what I did wrong. I don't remember doing anything wrong per se, but like, no, just too spastic. So I was always the one like lugging, lugging and moving. I was allowed to use the wood splitter though. Um, so yeah, no, I haven't. When the electric chainsaws came out, it had been like years compared to gas chainsaw and then the electric. I'm like, oh my God, this feels so dangerous because it doesn't feel dangerous. Like this is freaky. Right. Right. Like, just like electric ones. So, um, so no, to this day, I really don't have very much interaction. I have a very healthy respect. Like I, I am truly aware of how dangerous they are. My dad was a professional lumberjack doing like the competition stuff mm. years during, during that time as well. And like, we watched people chop their toes off cause they were doing like the standing ax splitting and there's no steel toe boots. Like the injuries I saw happen as a kid, like really changed, even just like touching the saws. Like there was a cross cut, like don't touch that. So I, like, I have that very healthy fear within me. So I, myself, and I'm, I don't really enjoy watching. Well, not, I don't really, I don't enjoy watching job sites because it just runs through my head what could happen. And the industry that I've worked in for 25 years now, 
as a physical therapist does tell me like shit happens and sometimes you never see it coming. And so I'm a much more paranoid person now. <laughs> My right, right. Be paranoid than I was as a kid seeing some of that stuff because I've seen. But the one common theme I would say 25 years working um, and I've, I've worked with a lot of injured workers. It happened to be one of my specialties. Right. There was always information. And sometimes the information was simply, I can't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. I can't keep doing this. Right. And as Tony had said, like, you know, for my dad, it was a financial reason. And also you just pushed through. Like we had limiting beliefs of I have to keep going. I have to provide for my family, even when things are off. And so mm-hmm. I have... I mean, so many different stories from injured workers who I've spent, you know, thousands of hours with at this point in time, saying that there was information ahead of time, or they were saying to themselves, I can't keep doing this, but I don't know what else I'm going to do. You know, so we get that point within any job when we're not enjoying it anymore, our body's trying to tell us something, you know, somebody who works in an office breathing recycled air under artificial lights all day can have the same thing. I can't keep doing this. I'm selling my soul. Like when we are not in alignment with our heart's desire and impacting the world, the way that each and every one of us is uniquely designed to do our body sometimes will take us out so that Mm. we get on our ass and we learn and we're in that being state instead of the doing state and say, what has to change? Yeah. Well, you know, Amanda, it's, uh, I, I love talking about this stuff because there's so many different avenues you can go with it but what what would you say is one of the biggest lessons that trees have taught you it's the biggest well this is going to be a little bit like deep and not necessarily anything that we have talked about but just that like change is inevitable mm. change is inevitable and it's sometimes the the shit that happens to us in life the rough weather if you will actually makes us stronger you know so there's so much that we can learn from the wisdom of trees in general, just by watching them. And they're like elders, you know, when we're feeling very alone, when we're feeling, when we're going through hard times in life to recognize everything that they have been through, all the seasons that they have been through, all the storms that they have been through and all the hundreds of years that they've lived. There's just such tremendous wisdom in them. Absolutely. Can't, couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> I agree. Well, I, uh, yeah. It's a lot to think about, a lot to process. Well, you, well, DJ's tired of me because we just spent all last week spent together, a week together doing trainer. <laughs> yeah. Which brings up a, an interesting concept. I'd never realized that having, you know, you talked about the value of coherence when we're working and while training doesn't work, the training I've seen work the best is when you conduct a class that gets the students as close to coherence as you can. I mean, ultimately, you have to move yourself into a state of coherence, right? It's like it's like motivation. You can show someone the path, but you can't really motivate somebody, right? You can inspire them, but you can't motivate them. And having done trainer with Dwayne and, uh, and DJ last week, I realized that so many of the tools that I've been using for these years that I learned over and over are really the reason that they work is they start to generate that, that coherent field of learning, which is an interesting way to go about it. And, uh, yeah, it was an interesting perspective. I'm not entirely sure I'm, um, I, those types of ideas occur to me and then I got to think about them for a while before I can talk about them. Um, but it was an interesting observation I had this last week. And I look forward to being able to train again and then see 
do that, you know, from the outside looking in as best I can, like rise up above myself and see what I'm doing and then see how it, how it plays out from that perspective. It should be interesting. But having totally. said that, I, I don't want to oh, go ahead, DJ. Yeah, no, it's, I, I just wanted to say it's been a, been a pleasure getting to talk with you again, Amanda. And, and, uh, yeah, listen, listening to your stories and learning a bit more about your dad too, which I'm sure I've heard some of those stories before, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it brings it to a new light for me for sure. So, um, and just to, just to hear that put that way too, that, you know, he sensed that something was off a little bit that day. Um, I think it really encapsulates the whole idea of trees affecting us both personally and, and professionally and, uh, how we choose to go about navigating that in life is navigating that feeling is, is up to us. And, uh, yeah, it's been a, been a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks DJ. So good to see you again.